Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie and Kent. I'm joined by the writer, Roger Robinson, whose latest book has just been published, Home is Not a Place, a collaboration with photographer and writer Johnny Pitts. It's a free-form composition of Johnny's images with Roger's words reflecting on Black Britishness and its resilience. Roger's previous books include A Portable Paradise, which won the T.S. Eliot Prize and RSL on Duce Prize. This collection of poetry includes laments for the victims of the fire at Grenfell Tower, London, as well as explorations on the legacy of slavery. Rogers also published The Butterfly Hotel and Adventures in 3D, a book of short fiction and other poems. Roger, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you so much for having me. Roger, in the beginning of your recent book, there's a passage called The Quality of Light. And you write about describing the specific light where you're from and the certain light where you live. Can you do that? Can you describe for me where the light where you're from and the light where you live? That's a good question. I guess the light where I'm from has a certain type of glare that now I know helps my circadian rhythms and keeps me on track. The light where I'm at is always a couple levels below that. And um, so sometimes in this life, I often feel offbeat, you know, it always has me a little off kilter. One of the things I do now is really try to get early to whatever light there is to get more glare into my eyes, but it's still different. It's, 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 it's nearly whiter light in Trinidad than, than here. That's the best way I can describe it, really. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, you were you were born in London, actually, weren't you? But you grew up in Trinidad in the West Indies yeah. and now live in the UK. Have you always felt comfortable living in between, that, that toing and froing rhythm? I mean, I, you got I, you had to kind of get used to it, you know? Um, because, you know, to some extent, you have a kind of dissolution of your identity in the beginning. And then a kind of resolution of where you live now. So I've lived in England more than I've lived in Trinidad now. And I I consider myself, even though Trinidad is in my heritage, I consider myself Black British now more than Trinidadian. More so because if I go back to Trinidad now and I try to take a taxi, everybody would just walk in front of me. You know, all the rhythms are different. All the language is different, you know. And, you know, when you come from a different country, you kind of hold the country exactly how it was in your head when you were young. But the country moves on without you you know and um and so there's always a, a type of dissonance between what you have in your head and what happens when you go back you know not that, not that I don't like Trinidad I like Trinidad my sister lived there my father lives there my mother used to live there um so it's not like I don't like Trinidad but I it's hard to say like I think Trinidadianness is in my bones but whether or not I'm a, still a citizen of Trinidad I don't know you know I don't feel the in-betweenness as much like, I feel like I live here and I visit there. And when I'm there, I think I, I'm well, I'm ready to go home soon. And our home is England. And that's weird, <laughs> you know? That yeah. is interesting because I, I remember this yeah. line in the Butterfly Hotel 
Yes. The line was on the plane. I wondered where home was, but maybe right, you're not wondering right. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't. I don't. No, no, that was it exactly. And that's when I began to think about that. You know. Yeah. You got good memory. How did you remember remember that line from that poem? Um, you're a good writer. What can I say? <laughs> Burning in my head. Um, nevertheless, I mean, was it that journeying between two places and, and two cultures? Is that what made you in great part, or at least make the lens which you see the world through? I guess so. I mean, more and more, I find myself nearly having an eye that even though it might seem like full of emotion, I'm actually trying to come away from my version of it. I'm trying to present it with very little emotion so that the reader can make up their own minds. Um, so even when I was writing about Grenfell, I felt nearly more like a, a camera in a documentary. Like that I have no, I have no view in this. I'm presenting um, to some extent what I, I see and partly what I imagine it could be without me saying I feel this way because you know in a time when when the will around you is always about I I I and I have this opinion I have this, it's made me feel like a nearly anti-selfie it's like I want the writing to be I see this I talk to this person it's not about me it's what it's what I see and what I gather and like in home it's not a place it's very much about going and meeting people and just like oh okay that's interesting you know and having no vision of what it is or what it could be I mean obviously you have certain types of orientations so you see things in a certain way you know but um but I'm tending to come away from my very, very early books of poetry was all about me, my mom and my dad and my, 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 what you call it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a big history of confessional uh, or, or poetry that kind of focuses on the self, but hopefully that resonates in a public way. And so more and more, I felt concentrated on myself wasn't resonating in a public way. And I wanted the work to resonate in a public way. You know, and I think I'll continue on with that. Will be less about me, and if it's about me, it has to have some public resonance. You know? Well, that kind of maybe brings me to, to kind of how you made the book um, with Johnny. You um, and he took a journey around the UK, and you left London and followed the River Thames east out of town, um, and not far from. Tilbury, where the Empire Windrush docked in 48, and and then you followed the coast around the UK. I, I know you hit Margate, parts of Kent, other parts of Kent, and um, Land's End, and, and all the way to John O'Groats and, and, and towns in between. Yeah. Geography, of course. How, how was the journey, this, this, I guess, the harvesting of material and the, the bearing witness, as you say, it almost sounds journalistic in your attempt yeah, sure. to be emotional. Well, you know, there's the actual journey itself, but then there's also journeying with someone. And even journeying with someone is as interesting as, because that's part of what makes the journey. So even in the book, we hope it, it sometimes functions as some type of travelogue. You know, we I tried to put in some little elements of conversation between Johnny and I, but also to, so that you could kind of have a feel of movement in the book. And the traveling was amazing because some bits of it came in between COVID 
And so people had been in their homes. And also a lot of the black communities we'd been to, nobody ever asked them about their lives before. So you'd ask a couple of questions and they literally do. I have some recorded material that's over two and a half hours long, just from a chance meeting, just from, a you know, because a lot of the meetings, interesting, because Johnny had done a lot of this kind of map making uh, ge geographical work before in his book, um, Afropeans. So he had a way of working. I mean, I was so ignorant. He picked me up the first day and we went to, uh, we went to Bristol. Yeah. And then in Bristol, I was like, are we meeting people here? He's like, no, we're just jumping out and we're going to talk to people. I was like, what? You know what I'm saying? So, so we were just, you know, go walking through St. Paul's with a camera, taking pictures of people, talking to people. And yeah, I think we talked to 12 people, 12 different people that day because we'd meet one person and they say, you have to talk to my friend Cleo. She's like ex, she was the ex-mayor of Bristol. And they ring up Cleo and Cleo said, oh, meet me by the mural in 15 minutes. And we get to the mural and she'd be there. She said, oh, you have to talk to my friend. And then you have this kind of thing where people are referring us to other people in certain communities, but also people like in, and it was a summer day and people were just talking over fences and walls and stuff in St. Paul's. And so what I realized is that that kind of way really democratized the idea of who is worthy of a portrait and who is worthy of an interview. And it made me kind of get into the idea of, you know, ordinary people can be extraordinary if you just take time to listen to them, you know? And, um, and, and we had been moving away from, one of the things we didn't want to stray into with the feel of the book is a, a kind of trauma porn. You were trying to come away from, from the idea of just suffering. And if we could uh, find the ordinary or find banality, you know, and how, how, how can we bring kind of myth and beauty to the banality of black people, ordinary people, not people in performance or people in trauma, because so many media entities have the idea of black identity as in you're either performing, you're either playing basketball or football, or, or you're dying, you know? And so we wanted to be like, okay, the ordinariness of black people couldn't be extraordinary. And, and you know, it was a time where you, you had the kind of George Floyd murder. And one of the things we discussed is that, you know, it's really, if, if they cast black people's image as something that's not ordinary or human, then it's actually easier to kill black people. Yeah. And that, you know, casting black people as ordinary or extraordinarily ordinary is a form of humanizing them. And then, you know, people, once you humanize them, you have to deal with them as a person and guilt and, and complexity when you had to oppress them or try to kill them. And, um, and so that was very much in our minds when we was having a conversation. And and was it that in your in the practice and the kind of the practicality of that kind of reporting, were you yeah. furiously taking notes on a in a notebook? Were you like exploding onto the page with a poem, or were you just kind of absorbing and 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 then you know it was kind of transforming later? I wonder how that worked. Well, it was Michelle. It was super high tech. It was on my iPhone. <laughs> it was, it's like I put the iPhone in their face and recorded it super high tech. And, you know, we'd listen to it. We'd listen to it. But also ours was to be a creative response to it. It wasn't necessarily to quote them, but it was to get something of their persona or the feel or the idea of living there as an idea. So, you know, not many people, people were probably more, quoted directly in the um in the essays 
But in terms of the poetic response, it might be, I might respond to how Johnny took the picture. I might respond to what they're like, what the person is like. I might respond to the context in which we are interviewing these people. I might respond to uh, the actual sea itself and the coast itself. So it was really to have creative responses as opposed to kind of go, quote them verbatim, you know. So all the pieces are creative responses as opposed to them seeing it themselves. And, you know, some of it is imaginative, but you can't, you can't get, we couldn't get to the poems without having a trip. You couldn't get to the poems without the interview, you know, yeah. And and then I, I look at the collaboration between the two of you, because mm -hmm. the book, which is this, this overlapping of words and, and photography, I, I can, I can, I sense that you're, you're not writing to, to Johnny's pictures and, and Johnny's not taking pictures in the wake of your words. Yeah. Um, so how was that collaboration practically in the sense of maybe doing the layout together and sorting it? Also, the interesting thing we had, we actually had the designer for the book before we started the book. So one of the things we asked for is that we could kind of collaborate with the designer as a third, as a third wheel, you know? Um, so having the designer was amazing. So everything we thought about, we just sent to him and he sent back an idea. He's like, yo, this, no, not that. Oh yeah, this, not that. Uh, so, the, so we were like landing and laying the ground at the same time, like, like laying the runway at the same time. So we were really lucky to have that designer into, and he's a really, really good designer. He's going to design one of my other books too. And, um, and he really understood what we were about and he really had experience and he liked the process of being in with a book before you had the information. So we had these things called book camps where we'd spread out all these pictures and stuff. Johnny has this idea of um, if you're doing a book that could be difficult, you have to make it as much fun as humanly possible, which is the thing I'm taking on in all my projects. So we had book camps where we where we go to um, William Collins and you lay out all the pictures and the poems on a massive table. And then we invited all the people who we knew who were like, we call them like our friends who are haters, but like lots of writers, lots of photographers, lots of uh, photo editors and stuff like that. And they just walk around and they talk about ideas and we talk about we talk about what we were thinking. We'd read the poems, put two poems and pictures together, see how they felt see if we wanted to have a kind of energy of them rejecting each other. We talked about the idea of still cinema, starting um, starting an image with a, with a picture and then having the image move in the mind of the poetry. And so, so this is like beyond silent cinema, is beyond black and white, it's actually still cinema. And we kind of like that idea. Uh, we didn't want it to be predictable. There was something about the off-kilter nature of Black life on the coast that we wanted to reflect. But also, to in the book, we wanted to have a certain type of Black music that we were creating a rhythm to uh, with the pictures and the poems too. And that music was like uh, musicians like Jay Diller, who created different time sense for drums, especially on uh, with drum with machines and drums, and then that became the kind of tempo. So we wanted it to be slightly off kilter. We we thought that the failure of the book was to take pictures, write poems based on what they said, and then have that on every page. We knew that that was that would be the failure of the book. So okay, what what can make the book successful? What different avenues can we go through? Sorry, I hope I'm not delusion, uh, giving you a deluge of information. You know what I'm saying? I, know, like, I, but, uh, I, um, yeah. I just want to come to, you know, I slightly feel mm. like, why didn't I get an invitation to that party? 
Ah, yeah, you should. Next one, next book comes, you're coming true for sure, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was fun, you know, like the ordering yeah, food I've and stuff like that. So, like, yeah, yeah. Well, I've yeah. seen some of the names in your acknowledgements. So I definitely want, um, I'm going to remind you of that. Um, yeah, for sure. It would be remiss of me, I think, to, to not say how beautiful this book is to hold. Um, it, it's Thank and you. the pages of the, it's the it's a blue, not quite of a morphe butterfly, but very vivid. <laughs> and the photographs, yeah. um, it's ravishingly printed and, and heavy in the hand. And um, yeah. but to the title, Roger, home is not a place. Echoes yeah. a quote of James Baldwin in his book Giovanni's Room. Sure. The quote is. Perhaps home is not a place, but simply an irrevocable condition. Yeah. Is it for you, Roger, um, an irrevocable huh. condition? You know, my wife asked me, um, so one, one of the things, you know, Johnny used to live in Marseille at one point before COVID. Mm. And, and because he traveled through Europe with Africans, he had seen so many places and he thought Marseille was a Shangri-La for him quite close to where James Baldwin was, you know? Um, and so I visited him there and I gave him this book uh, for his book. It was during his birthday. I gave him this book, um, Sweet Flight Paper of Life. And we kind of agreed that we were going to do something like that at a certain point. Um, so when we were in Marseille, we had been looking, so we've been living in England, but we had been looking to see if there's other places that we could possibly live. Like if we could leave this house here and live somewhere. So we visited Marseille with a genuine idea of seeing how it is. And Johnny took us around and it was so beautiful. Uh, and we was like, okay, we're gonna bring Caden back and see, see a school, you know, bring my son back and see a school there. And so, um, and COVID hit, but my wife was asking me, you know, could I live anywhere? And I was like, hmm. If I had a really strong internet connection <laughs> and access to an airport and my family and my friends could come and visit me, I think I can more or less live anyway. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, I think my, my home as a place is nearly psychogeographic, especially during COVID. I realized that there's a lot of friends I have all around the world. And through technology, we connect as if they're down the road. You know, I probably talk with friends from uh, uh, LA more than I talk with friends from London because COVID allowed us to kind of reach out more and be still and reach out. So I think now, you know, my my collection of people is psychogeographic. They're from around the world and we have similar outlooks and similar tastes and sometimes you don't get that on your street or you're not getting that in any town next to you or you're not getting that in your immediate circle of physical friends that are close to you so yeah so my home really isn't a place you know it's people my home is people i look back to the piece that you wrote when i was commissioning at vanity fair and yeah i remember you saying how how trips developed in you a, a confidence in your world citizenship and and i i, yes. I just pasted it in here to say to requote it back to you. Mm. Said, um, Since then, travel for me has always meant new ways of thinking. The very act of motion stimulates different thoughts and escape from the everyday rituals of home to talk to new people about their ideas, to see myself in an international context. And I wonder oh, if that is, yeah, they're your words. But... <laughs> He's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I wonder if, if, of course, yes, we can, and I guess you have gotten that yeah. without yes. without travel. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You found a substitute, true. and but now that you can, Roger, would you not say there's no substitute? Well, now that I can, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a benefit to being in proximity of another human being you know what i'm saying there's definitely a, a benefit from that like we're on tour with the book and even tracing and seeing some people again who we talk to in the book at the readings and going out to eat with them and everything like that it's really kind of slight it's quite joyful because they were a part of the community of this book um i think if you can you can if you can then do by all means it's not it's not meant to substitute you know what i'm saying it's just like but I've had super meaningful conversations with people who I haven't seen for a long time physically. And and I'd rather be able to do that than not see them at all, than not have the communication at all, you know? So, Well, I'm going to pick um, up the word you just said, Joy, because mm-hmm. that features um, in Home is Not a Place. Yeah. And there's an essay, it's an ode really, on mm-hmm. Black Joy. Mm-hmm. And you write it, Black Joy that is, I quote, is often not deliberate or complex, but there is a complexity to the feelings it might elicit. In fact, for me and a lot of other black people I've spoken to, being black and making a living is such a constant struggle that we're sometimes not ready when joy overtakes us. Mm. And you use this word when you write about black joy that it can become uncontrollable. And the examples you give vary from reading to a class of five-year-olds to <laughs> watching on your computer screen, Summer yeah, of Soul yeah. by Questlove. Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you what it, it is, do you think, that's the common denominator to conjuring this joy for you? Yeah. As I say, I think in the concluding paragraph, I talk about when Black people come together, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like the whole essay in, in, a, in a chapter, isn't it? When Black people come together, they kind of synchronize. They they are able to see each other in each other, but most more importantly, that they could shake off the rigors of being black in a in a in a in a country that probably doesn't value them or their bodies. When you could shake that off and see each other in each other and kind of synchronize, often this is a music and some type of laughter that is a particular black joy as opposed to any other type of joy that you know you specific you specifically as a race are facing certain challenges and those certain challenges often prevent joy but when you can get together with other people who understand and um and shrug that off and be together that's a particular type of black joy yeah yeah, yeah. The, the, the gatherings, the family gatherings, the, right. and, and then you describe in a hallway about going to a party yeah. at a friend's, friend's, friend's house. And right. it yeah, yeah, matter, yeah, yeah. Right? It doesn't matter yeah. if there's friends in between. It's just that that you will get it. You will get each other. Yes. And, um, yes. yeah, yeah. and you call the hallway in that piece, which this, the space on the other side of the front door, you call it the transition yeah. between inside and out. Yes. Your transitions, Roger, where do you think you still move between? It's a good question. I think I'm becoming older. 
So I haven't I haven't lots of little transitions. It's like when I go to the gym, I was like, okay, I wonder if I'll be able to bench press 225 today. I don't think like that anymore at all. You know, like now I'm thinking, can I bend down to tie my laces <laughs> without pulling a muscle in my back? You know, it's, it's like I have completely different uh, metrics for nearly everything. So like before, I was just like, I have to get this done. I have to get this done. Now I'm like, what can I say no to, you know what I'm saying, and still get this done, you know? Yeah. And so I used to be like, nearly grind culture productivity now i'm like okay i'm on slow productivity no i'm not taking on i'm not taking on more i'm taking on less i'm trying to do less better you know i used to be like oh i need to get to by the time you know i stop writing or you know, my mind if my, if if something stops me from writing i want to have 20 books i was like no i'm good I'm, i'll be good with six seven books i'm fine it's so it's okay you know it's just like so i don't have um i don't have that young young person grind culture thing that i had and that was a definite transition i mean prob i probably still had it before writing a portable paradise so you're talking about 2017 i probably still had that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. now i'm like um between 2017, A Portable Paradise, COVID, and this book, I have come through. That was being my transition. I'm on the other end. I, I will literally say more no's than yeses, no matter what it is. You know, even if it's even if it's a kind of monetary exchange, I'd be like, no, I'm if it's like now, like I heard somebody else say this and try trying to remember who it was. Like if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. You know, it's like it's like I'm not trying to just make up numbers if if it's if it's about money i'll do the best thing for the money that i can that work within what i'm trying to do slow productivity that's my new thing yeah i'm hearing you i'm hearing you and i'm grateful you said yes to this thank you very much i've really i've really got that in 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 this book because yeah. because I, there's a journey going on and i I did want to ask about the rhythm of the road and the movement. Like, w was there a plan? It's at least like we've got to get to South End on sea by this date, or we've got to get. Or yeah. was it very loose and fluid? Well, because Johnny's done this before, so many things I kind of deferred to him about, deferred to him too. I'm trying to take my time in from him, and he's incredibly improvisatory. You know, so so you might go to. Uh, scotland and he was like yo cops going on let's go let's go to let's go to cop and just talk to people there i said johnny that's it's not it's not the coast he's just like he's like who cares let's go you know what i'm saying and then you know he adding days here adding days you'll be ringing home i'm like uh we might be back in about a few days later that you know what I'm saying? so so it's, it's johnny's quite improvisatory but but he's also that kind of flaneur type you know it's like wherever the energy he's gonna go to you know what i'm saying so um and he has that sense of a uh being a flaneur you know just like some days we barely get anybody in any pictures you know but he, but as he said that it all counts because there's other things that we saw that weren't people you know what were the surprises or the unexpected that made you stop that you encountered along the way one we we always thought that it was going to be like a thin seam of dealing with racism but what we didn't expect was like random other things like like when we were in Blackpool, we were talking to these two brothers and uh, there's not a big black community in Blackpool. Yeah? And so he's like, well, what are the main things you're trying to deal with? And they'd be like, you know, 
and you know, kind of hinting at, I was kind of hinting at racism, you know, and it's like, yeah, racism, it's just all right, we can deal with that. Like, we need work in the off season. That's what we worry about. Like, so, they, so all they think about is like, what are they going to do in the off season of Blackpool, you know, because in the, in the, on, during the season, they work a lot, you know, and, and so those types of things. So I said to one of them, why didn't you, why don't you move to Preston? There's a bigger community and there's obviously more work. He says, no, I, I like how the sea sounds here. I was like, what? You know, and it kind of led me on this thing about, wow, how black people perceive the sea. So that essay that the sea means something different to us, that it became clear to me that black cultures as compared to like other working class cultures, which are a lot by the sea, have a completely different version of what the sea is. And, and that kind of led to that essay, you know? And I think all peoples from all um you know global majorities global majority people have a different version of what nature is from european you know yeah well there's a there's a section called deal which is a coastal town in kent you yeah. describe and and where migrants are washed up on the beach and you write this line don't you turn your gaze don't leave the bodies scattered here and there upon this coast and and as you say it's it's that title of the of the section the sea means something different to us. I wanted to ask you, Roger, what do you see when you look at the English Channel off Margate, say, or indeed the turquoise Caribbean Sea of Trinidad? Yeah. I mean, I, I see a lot of kind of uh, migrations and transmigrations. Um, you know, you have the Windrush, kind of like people traveling on the sea and the Windrush. Then you have, you know, going back further on, uh, at transatlantic slavery, then you have, you know, people being dumped in the sea. You know, there was there was I heard a quote the other day is that they have so many black people who died in transatlantic slavery who were thrown overboard that you could actually walk to Africa from Africa to Europe on their bones. That's how many. Like if you made a path, you can walk from Africa to Europe on a small part of their bones, and so that's the kind of things I see. But also to it's just not to get metaphysical, but instinctively, I feel that, you know, nobody had to tell me that before. That's something I feel kind of deep in my, because I never had to know the history to to feel that in any way, you know, so. There's another haiku, which I know has been much quoted um, because you wrote it before the murder of George Floyd. Right. As we know, by a white policeman in Minneapolis. And, and it is when police place knees at your throat, you may not live to tell of choking. Uh, you know, the timing was quite extraordinary because it was quite, you know, not very long before George Floyd was killed. And and poets sure. over the millennia have been called prophets. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was painfully prescient. And, and there are all sorts of other poems you've written, I really hope don't foretell mm. the truth. Yeah, for sure. sure. But I, I also think that that, poem and others you've written is also soothing because because it acknowledges even before that event that that that, that was going on and and we're kind of reassured yeah. by you that, that that it's noticed that it's documented that, it, that it's archived sure. and remembered and and that's you know before that event gripped the world and and so in that way your poetry has has a reason to be in a kind of usefulness i say that with the greatest respect to you as an yeah, artist for sure, for sure. i want to uh, to read out one haiku and just the title of a poem and it goes like this some people will stand 
the whole length of their journey than sit with black men. And then there's also a poem entitled Loving Myself in a Land That Does Not Love Me. Given that, I wonder how you forecast your feelings as a black man in the UK and, and raising a child in the UK. I mean, it's a, it's a good question, but there's also a sense that wherever you are, that there's work to do, you know, and you and you can't shirk from that work. I often talk about this idea of creative citizenship. So lots of lots of people who interviewed me had called me an activist. I like I'm not I'm not an activist in any way. I don't get up. I don't join any marches. I don't you know I'm not out there on the streets. But what I do have is a sense of the world that I want to build with with my creative gifts, if for want of a better word, and to use those creative gifts in aid of building a world that I want to see. So uh, in A Portable Paradise, I put young black boys on the cover solely because in so-called high literature, you never see young black boys on the cover of anything. So I wanted it to be so that in, you know, my child is nine now, in 10 years time, if the book is still around, that he could be able to see people who look like him on that time. And I want to use that space for that, you know, and that's a sense of creative citizenship over and above what anybody else wants. And, and like, and it was non-negotiable. I just like, if you don't do it, I'm not going to publish with you, you know, and, um, and standing on that type of stuff as a creative citizen. It's kind of a tool. It can be a yes. tool for me or, or your readers. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want the poems to have some type of utility you know it's not an exercise where i'm trying to be like wrapped up in academia or garrett and just like i'm the writer it's like i really wanted to be amongst people and and have utility that's a, that's a big thing for me um i think the prescience of it i think what i've realized is it's less about being a prophet and more about there's a certain level where you develop craft to where you're able to literally pull things out of the air and not be able to explain it, you know. Um, and I think it's it's a craft thing as opposed to more as opposed to a profit thing, you know. VS Naipo was quite like that, like even things that are unfolding with China now, Naipo, but because he was such a craftsman, and I realized that sometimes craft crafts allows you to get at, at things other people probably not thinking about at the time you know uh a portable paradise was so weird in that there were several things like that about you know, so I, I wrote poems and this is and then COVID happened you know so there were loads of things and then i i had no idea that nobody would ever come to uh, nobody would ever be on trial for Grenfell and and be guilty and pay for it. And then, you know, you write blame and then years later, nobody, nobody is held responsible. I mean, I think recently they had some elements of holding someone responsible, but, but a lot of the things you couldn't, you couldn't think about. And also a portable paradise I wrote nearly for want of a better word in a blind rush. You know what I'm saying? There was something different about me writing that where I felt like I didn't care what industry took part in it. I knew, I th I think I wrote a portable product for me. You know what I'm saying? And I think people joined in. And that's the first book that I think I wrote just for me. 
you know, like I wanted to write it. I mean, Home is Not a Place to some extent is just for me too, because I wanted to, because Home is Not a Place was an opportunity to spend time with a mind like Johnny Pitts. So that's what I wanted. <laughs> and whatever the project was going to do really didn't matter to me. It's just like, yo, we're going to do something together. Let's do it, you know? Um, um, and it's not to say that other books I wasn't passionate about, like I was very passionate about Butterfly Hotel, but the Butterfly Hotel, for some reason had, it was like looking through, I'm sorry, I'm just waffling here. It was like looking through a frosted glass at a feeling, you know what I'm saying? And and describing the frosted glass and not the feeling. Yeah. Whereas a portable paradise was like, I was on the other side of the frosted glass and I'm in the feeling and I had to hold myself back and just be like, okay, turn, turn your camera on and just, Picture it, you know, picture it in the entire time. So I don't know if understand that, but I do, yeah. I do understand. Oh, okay. It's very interesting actually the way that you described that there because um it much is much more raw, portable paradise and yes. yes. But there is there is a line in in the butterfly hotel, another line in the yes. butterfly hotel under the immigrants lament. And I wondered yes. if you feel it, Roger, or if it was through frosted glass, which is his daily ache is memory. Yes, yeah, 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 for sure. I'm, I'm not there anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's just like I think there's a, there's a point where you have the, the double think of, of being an immigrant, where that's up, you're constantly in between. I mean, I think that's why I use the idea, the kind of, the idea of a butterfly as a symbol. You know what I'm saying? Like going back and forth. You know, um. Well, I'm not there anymore. I'm not, you know, I don't have that, that constant ache, you know, it's like, like I went to Trinidad uh, for my mom's funeral recently. And besides the funeral, I wasn't really interested in spending a lot of extra time there. It was away from my family, away from my house and everything that I, I spent time with my sister, obviously, but it wasn't, I wasn't just like, oh, let me add a week and a half on to just, you know, have a little holiday. I was like, man, and I, I got things to do. I need to get home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just like. I wondered, is it something to do with a sense of belonging? Does belonging not matter? Do you feel like you belong or you're happy unbelonging? I think having a child is part of it. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, so having a child kind of has rooted me, rooted me more here, thinking about the world that he's going to see and thinking about, you know, my creative citizenship in creating that world that he's going to see. Um, I always tell my child he's Trinidadian and he's like, I've never even been to Trinidad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, I don't care, you're Trinidadian. But just just teasing him sometimes. Uh, but he's a little a little black British boy, you know. Uh, my wife is a black British woman, you know. And to some extent, um, that world is the world I am in, you know. And 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 thinking about, you know, the plight of black British people who, weirdly, besides somebody like Linton Quasi Johnson, doesn't really occur in poetry at poetry and high literature nearly at all, you know. I would even say my ongoing project is. Besides some elements of teaching, you know, my ongoing project is to create a Black British mythology and creating a Black British mythology so that we could process things like trauma, process things like um, uh, evaluation of our bodies, process things like uh, relationships, process things like lots of different people, because the Black British identity is not monolithic, it's loads of different you know, black bodies here, process what a black British identity could possibly be, you know?
Um, and I think, you know, mythology helps with that. I think European mythology helps European culture to do that. You know, the idea of, you know, using Greek gods and stuff like that, you know, is, is fairly easy to grab a quote, to seize a moment in European culture from um, from mythology. But I don't think there's a black British mythology. I think there's a Caribbean mythology. I think there's an African mythology. I don't think there's a black British mythology. And I think, you know, a lot of the younger writers are working towards that even though they're not thinking necessarily that it's a black British mythology they're making. You know, someone like Kayo Chingonye or Caleb Femi or or Yomi Shode, even racial, even people like Rachel Long, they actually working towards a kind of black British mythology in my mind, even though that's probably not what they say they say they're doing. You know? I'm glad you're doing it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> what do, what's specifically then, finally, what, what's what's next? What are you pursuing? Uh, I'm writing a novel at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. that took me by surprise. Yeah, 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 yeah. It took me by surprise, to be honest with you. Um, so I'm writing a novel, um, getting that done, so that'll be finished next year. Can we hear and... anything else about the novel? Can you tell me anything about the novel? Ew. What can I say? What can I say? Um, is is it's not historical drama, but it's a drama that reckons with history. Yeah. So I don't have the thing where historical drama where I have to be exactly correct or I have 13 pages about the color or texture of the of the cast of a castle's curtains. You know what I'm saying? I'm not on that. It's the, the opposite of Hilary Mantel. It's not a tome, it's not 400 pages. There'll be curse words in it that you probably hear today. Um so it reckons with history, but it's not historically, um, it's not a historical document. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what else can I say about it? It is, it's very influenced by, uh, by kind of fragmented narrative, you know, like people like don't books and stuff like that, very much in that kind of mode, like, uh, like House on Mango Street, uh, Indelicacy, Amina Kane, you know, it's like very much in that mode. Um, Justin Torres, We the Animals. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm actually like super happy about it. Uh, and I'm going to have another book uh, about uh, basically, I do these artists, artists, things on Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that. And basically it's based on Marcus Aurelius meditations and in meditations, Marcus Aurelius meditations, he would more or less wake up and write an aphorism about how to be a better leader, how to kind of live a better life. And so I had started doing that in 2011 about how to be a better artist, you know, getting up and writing these aphorisms and tweets and stuff. And, uh, and so they're going to be compiled into a book. Yeah, about okay, like a manifesto, yeah. wasn't it? Hang on a minute. Yeah. I thought you told me you were slowing down. What well, I no, I slowing down. That that book. So the the artist book is actually finished. You know what I'm saying? So it's finished. It's just about for it to to come out and everything. Just like checking. That. So, just checking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's finished. That's finished. <laughs> I mean, you, had, you had just said to me like, I'm taking it easy. I'm no, doing no, 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 no. I am. I am. I literally am. Just. I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing. <laughs> just checking because I'm yeah, 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 saying yeah. the same thing about I'm I'm cooling it, but then. I'm ramping it and I'm cooling it. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Well, I, I look really 
eager to get that novel in my hands and but of course I long to read more poetry too so um but listen Roger Robinson thank you very much for joining me on thank the you very much Mish. thank you for having me it was your your, your your questions made me think in a good way <laughs> great it's great to hear and thanks yeah. to the support of this podcast Abercrombie and Kent goodbye